We're making our way through John's gospel. We're wrestling uh, as we go with the question of what does it mean that God is present in our midst, which is one of the themes of John's gospel, and how do we experience God's presence? And today we finish the second half of chapter 6 of the gospel of John, which is by far probably the most uh, significant, the most important uh, passage in the New Testament for a theology of the Lord's Supper, and we'll see how that plays out. Uh, we'll pick up where we left off last week in verse 41 and read almost through the end of the chapter. If you're able, I'll ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? And what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray Him. And He said, This is why I told you that no one can come to Me unless it is granted Him by the Father. After this, many of His disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Jesus has done many things by this point, many miraculous things in the Gospel of John, even by chapter 6. He's turned water into wine. He's fed 5,000 people with two fish and five loaves. He has uh, walked on the water. And so you might think that given having accomplished such significant, miraculous tasks, that he would get a little bit of a break if he sounded a little crazy. 
It's Jesus, you know, let's not forget what he's done. He gets a little bandwidth uh, for saying very crazy things, which he's doing in, in what's before us. But he doesn't really get a pass. Uh, we find throughout, littered throughout, in verse 41, the Jews begin grumbling because he said, I am the bread that has come down from heaven. They uh, then are continue to be confounded in, in verse 52. Uh, because Jesus speaks about giving his flesh to eat. Uh, in verse 60, when many of the disciples heard it, they said this is a hard saying. And by verse 66, you have many of the disciples actually churning away and concluding that what Jesus has articulated is too difficult for them to remain followers of his. So we see here a portrayal of something that is absolutely scandalous for those who are hearing it. Does it strike you as something that is absolutely scandalous? As we read through that passage, did you even have, I can't believe Jesus said that, or my goodness, or can I really follow this person? It's not. Perhaps we don't really understand what's going on here. Perhaps we don't really understand. Perhaps our reaction should be a little bit like those disciples. Why was what Jesus was saying and articulating so profoundly challenging to his immediate audience. So we're going to wrestle with this morning. We'll do it by considering, uh, first looking at this notion that, number one, death breeds death. Number two, that death breeds life. And number three, that life breeds life. Number one, death breeds death. Number two, death breeds life. And number three, life breeds life. How does this play out? But Jesus is uh, stressing throughout that he is bringing something that is closely associated, that is in fact identified with life. I am the bread of life. If you feed on me, you will have eternal life. Uh, in 48, he claims that, uh, says, I am the bread of life. In 49, he contrasts that. Verse 49, he contrasts he says, listen, yes, your, your fathers did eat bread, bread provided by God. It was a blessing in the wilderness. God made provision for you to stay alive. You, they ate that bread, and it was a miracle, and you know what? They still died. It's not the kind of bread that Jesus is offering, and he's saying that this bread that I offer is substantially different. Yes, miraculous, but if you eat of it, you won't die. He says, this bread is my flesh, and this flesh is given for the life of the world. As Jesus over and over again stresses throughout John chapter 6 that he is life, that life is only at in him, uh, you begin to come to the conclusion and realize that, oh, if life is only found in Jesus, only found in coming to him and feasting upon him in a sense, then uh, then that must mean that that which is apart from Jesus is not, does not have life. That it is dead. And so Jesus is saying, and Paul, of course, will use language like this, that the world is dead in its trespasses. He's saying in a sense that, yes, this world is dead. They've been, they've been animated by some of God's provision, but it hasn't actually given them life that is true life. Life that they were intended to have from the beginning. I provide that. And so the world is dead unless it should feed on me, that it should eat my flesh and drink my blood. Isn't that interesting? That's, you know, that's almost contemporary language in terms of culture. We love shows and movies 
about dead things, eating flesh and drinking blood. It's almost an odd cultural phenomenon of the last 10 years or so, the proliferation which of uh, zombie features and of vampire features. Now, if I need to jog your memory, I can see some of you probably are not dipping into the Twilight Saga. But the Twilight Saga would be an example. All right, The Walking Dead, uh, True Blood, all of these things that are focusing on and telling the stories of vampires and zombies, who, if you know your vampires and zombies, which I would expect that you do, uh, they're dead. Right? They are the living or the walking dead. They are only animated by then either drinking blood or consuming flesh. And I have been known to wade into a zombie flick or two. And uh, when The Walking Dead came out, may have watched a little bit of it, even though I don't anymore because the writing became terrible. But um, oddly, Jennifer won't watch zombie things with me. And I think that's a sad commentary on her personality since she's not in this room. But she did point out one really interesting feature of... Uh, so she would like do laundry or walk around when I was watching The Walking Dead and or read sometimes right there in the room. And <laughs> one day she just looks up from her book and she goes, you know, if you're not watching the picture and just listening to the show, 50% of this show is... <laughs> so you can ask her to make her zombie noise later today. She's in the nursery this morning, so I have all kinds of freedom to run all over the place. But this idea that uh, the vampires and zombies is almost a metaphor that we could use to describe the world in which Jesus is describing, saying, listen, only in me is life, and you only have life by coming to me, which presumes that you are dead. That you're walking around as zombies and vampires, and only surviving by feeding off dead things. And I actually find that an incredibly helpful metaphor to looking at the world apart from Christ and even in the process of coming to Christ that when I, when I look out, I see, oh, this really is a world of zombies. It really is a world of vampires. Perhaps that's why the metaphor is popular today, that it gives us a little bit of understanding that when I see people taking advantage of other people or I see myself taking advantage of other people, it is an image of uh, death eating death consuming flesh, that I think I might have life, but of course it doesn't give me life. If I feed on death and I'm already dead, then that's only a cycle of death. And this shouldn't be foreign to us or surprising. It starts at the very beginning when the fall has occurred and Cain realizes that he's not being accepted in the way that Abel is. He says, I'm jealous and I don't like the way God is treating me. How am I going to handle and remedy my situation? I'm going to consume flesh. I'll kill my brother. And by devouring his flesh, I will feel better. And we have the cycle of a world that's cast into death and is death feeding on death. We see this as well in, even as we come into the church, in fact, we're somewhat good at it. There's One author was, was describing a cartoon where... Um, it was a picture of a woman who had adorned a grave beautifully in flowers. And someone else had come up to the grave and said, My goodness, you, you've really, you've, you've gone out of your way to, to adorn this grave with flowers. And the person, um, who was adorning the grave said, uh, Yes, he always hated flowers. 
And it's a picture of how we sometimes engage in something that looks baptized, it looks sanctified, it looks Christian, but really there's a lot of death in it. That we're still flesh-consuming flesh. And this is different for all of us because we all have different ruling passions. We all have things that drive us in different ways. And one of the things you have to be careful about is, is thinking that you've received more life than you actually have. And the way this plays out for different people, imagine that you, you have a ruling passion, and if you don't understand that language of ruling passion, you know, what am I talking about? I'm talking about what makes you most happy, uh, what, what, if it's threatened, do you feel the most, when you, you get the most upset and the most angry? What do you like to think about when you're not doing anything else? Where does your mind go? So, for example, for some people, it's pleasure. I love fun. I love having pleasure. And say, before I came to Christ, I did that in inappropriate ways. I was a huge partier, did the party scene, got involved in all kinds of substance I shouldn't have, and that was my party, and that's how I had fun. But I come to Christ, He starts to get a hold of me, and I come into the church, and I say, and I give all that up. I start to see myself as, oh, I've been sanctified, I'm being made holy, right? Those very bad things are being put away. But as I start to make friends in the church, I start to, um, you know, if someone comes near to me and isn't really fun, you know, they're needy, they kind of suck the life out of me, well, those people I decide to just kind of put away. And the other people in the church, the people who do know how to fun, you know, there's some people in the church who have more fun than I have fun. And I'm going to hitch my wagon, uh, or myself to their wagon, or my wagon to their horse, however that phrase goes. Right? And I'm going to draw near to them. And so what I'm actually doing is, yes, I've put away some really bad elements of a ruling passion of seeking fun and pleasure, but I've come into the church and I may think that I have life, but what I'm really doing is I, as I hold at arm's length those people who are needy, I'm protecting myself and in protecting myself, I'm not really loving them and in not loving them, I'm kind of getting life by allowing their flesh to be consumed. And then when I go over here and I hitch my wagon to these people who know how to have fun better than I do, well, the image you have to have, you know, it's it's vampire. I'm just befriending them because I want to suck some life out of them. And so while I may have the perception that, yes, I've experienced a lot of life, I realize, oh, I've really just taken what drives me and some of the real decay and I just putrescence of my heart, right, and allowed it to flourish in more acceptable ways. It doesn't mean that I'm really experiencing life of Christ. You may not be a pleasure seeker. That may not communicate to you quite uh, quite as effectively as something else might. But I'll give you one more example, and hopefully you'll be able to begin to process, to think through, what is your ruling passion? Right? For some people, it's to be influential. And so, if you are someone who really is driven by the need to be influential, you, a lot of times, you enter sales. And so, you say you're a salesperson, and over here, Christ hasn't gotten a hold of you, and you do all kinds of unscrupulous things to make sales. That you're the influential person, as long as you make the deal, you're moving up the ladder, and being more successful, it's all good. Christ gets a hold of you and you start to be convicted and say, I can't do that anymore. And so you clean up and your profits even diminish because now you're being a salesperson with integrity. 
You think I'm encountering holiness. You enter into the church. Oh, but all of a sudden, you are really want to be near the people of influence. And you want to exercise influence. So you become a theological nerd and start to make arguments and, and win arguments and move up some new ladder that's established in your mind and your heart about being influential and persuasive and powerful in the church. And again, what have you done? You've given up what looks to be really bad and nasty on the outside but you're still pretty bad and nasty on the inside. And the church now just becomes a new home to, to exercise your ruling passions in ways that are still corrupt. You're still not really alive. You've tasted some life by, being, by Christ grabbing hold of you, but you haven't really continued to be made new, to be born again, to really be given life. And so you realize that even within the church, you can be acting in this way that you're dead and consuming death. And we're flesh eaters. Right? I don't care what your ruling passion is. At the end of the day, when you engage it, because you're inadequate, because you don't know that you know that you don't have life in Christ, and it's not flowing through you, you desperately seek life, and the only way to seek that ultimately is to be a flesh eater. And so whatever your ruling passion is, know that in some way, you know, you are consuming someone else. Death breeds death. This is what what the Jews are wrestling with, because Jesus is bringing the answer to the four to this very desperate situation of a sinful world, a world that's been separated from God's presence and his life, and appeals to Isaiah 55 and verse 45, this idea that God would one day show up and actually teach the people. He says, this day is here. I have come. I am the bread of life. I reveal the Father. Only I can do it because only I have seen him and know him. And so to see and know me is to know the Father and to understand what is happening. And yet Jesus says the most ridiculously crazy thing. You know, if, if, G, if Jesus had a PR agent, like a, a press person, they would be flipping out because this is, the, the law went to great lengths to explain to the people of God that, that blood was something that was not supposed to be consumed. The dietary restrictions have, you know, explain the bloodletting that must occur so you don't eat meat with blood. And in some Jewish traditions, the language that's reserved for their most desperate enemies is that they are blood drinkers. And so now Jesus comes on the scene and he's supposed to be appealing that, yes, I'm the one who is to come. And he uses this language that couldn't alienate people more. It's like, what are you doing? He's saying, oh, you know, You don't understand how dead you are. You don't understand that there's only one source of life. And I've come to bring that life. And there's only one source for you to experience this life. And that is for you to have my flesh and to drink my blood. I'm going to have to die. My body is going to have to be broken. My blood will be shed. And only by consuming me will you actually have life. That's why this is... People died over this passage in the Reformation. Why? Because some people wanted to say it's metaphor. We're not going to kill anybody over this passage this morning, right? But some people wanted to say it's metaphor. And here's the important point. It couldn't possibly be metaphor. Right? There's no metaphor for Jesus to appeal to except those which are incredibly negative and would, would, would bring misunderstanding in the situation uh, that he's, he's trying to elucidate. He's trying to make clear and, under, and explain to the people how life will be had. Which means that Jesus must be being quite literal. Do you want life? There's only one way to have life. That's to eat my flesh and to drink my blood. All right. Now, 
we're not going to get into all of the Reformation and the debates over what happens at the table. We're simply going to say this. We don't really understand it. But in some way, in Calvin held that we are caught up and in a mystical fashion, we participate in the blood and flesh of Christ. It's not something that we can explain, and it may not be that physically here before us, but that's what Jesus is talking about in John chapter 6. Only by coming and consuming the flesh that actually is alive do we receive life. And Jesus comes to abide in us and we abide in Him. And that's where real life comes. Not simply by saying, oh, I know Jesus and I'm going to baptize some of my brokenness and my sinfulness and my twisted heart. No. Jesus says, you're completely dead and you must, you must feed on me to have life. His death is that which breeds life. So what, what does this mean? It means, first of all, that you should crave Jesus. If Jesus is the one source of life for you, then you should utterly want daily to think, how can I consume more of Jesus? How can I have more of Him? If I'm you, the, one of the first things I do today is go is grab an elder and say, hey, you know, why don't we have the Lord's Supper every Sunday? I'm feeling a little starved. Maybe that's something that we need to consider. If this, is, if this is this important to Jesus that He turns away disciples because they cannot grasp what He is saying, then maybe we should take that a little bit more seriously. But it's not just at the table that we feed on Jesus. It's in our time with Him. It's in experiencing His life. It's moving into those places where our deadness is exposed and more of His life can flow in. You know, let me ask, why are we always supporting and portraying opportunities to get involved in various ministries, to serve one another, and to talk about covenant groups where you enter into life together and enter into each other's pain and try to minister to each other? Or going to India across the world to be exposed to some of the pain of the places that are most oppressed. It's because, A, by going into those places, you begin to realize, yeah, I, I do live in a world of vampires and zombies. That, that person that drives me crazy, and you really need to, it's almost helpful to start to see the world this way. You know, the person who drives you crazy at work, who's really passive-aggressive and is offensive to a number of people, just imagine them, you know, like a zombie walking down the hall and they want, all they can do to live is to eat other people's flesh. And it's death breeding death, but you've been given privilege. You understand that Christ's death gives you life by feeding on Him. Now here's, here's the thing of the last point, and it would be brief, which is that life breeds life. And it's related to bringing up things like India and covenant groups and when we come to Jesus and He begins to give us life, we realize that we are dead and we begin to feed on Him. But often we stop at a very minimal level and think, oh, I, well, I'm satisfied or I've got enough. My salvation is guaranteed. But then you feel like as you go on, you're not really experiencing eternal or abundant life. And the reason is you're not. Because you've stopped very early and settled for something very short. And the best analogy that I can come up with is this is almost the notion of an electrical cord. You plug an electrical cord into an outlet in the wall, and the cord itself fills with electrons, right? 
but the cord fills and then it's done. No more electrons are going to flow into the cord until the cord is actually plugged into something else. And our relationship with Christ is something like that. We, we in a sense, get plugged into Christ. We feed on Him and become nourished by Him. He begins to abide in us. We abide in Him. We begin to experience life. But then if we just settle, things stagnate. In part because that's not what He's redeemed you for. He's redeemed you to be a participant in the redemption of the world. And so until the other end of that cord is plugged into something in which you say, oh, I have now received life from Christ. I want to extend life to something else. I plug into something else. Then Jesus' life begins to flow through you. It's not something that's stagnant. It's something that becomes a constant course, a constant stream of life that renews you. And this is what Jesus portrays to the people in John chapter 6, that we too could have such experience of Jesus. And so what do I want you to be thinking about and doing this morning? Right. If we've been on the same page this morning, you're walking away saying, the world, including me, is far more dead than I conceived. Desperately dead. And most people are trying to survive by feeding on the flesh of others. In fact, that's the only way to try to survive, even though it's not survival. When we come to Jesus, we begin to have life by feeding on Him, which is mean in every way and shape and form possible, I want to consume Him, which is means being in the Word, which means coming to the table as frequently as possible, which means being involved in ministry where His life will throw, flow through me. And in that, increasingly, Jesus then abides in me and I in him. And I begin to know what this life is that is abundant, that is everlasting, that he is describing and will continue to describe as we go forward in the Gospel of John. Which means that you need to do two things. And this is number one. What are you feeding on that is dead? We all have our delicacies of choice that are born out of our old nature. And even though you may have come to Jesus and may be experiencing life in Him, there are still things that you go to to eat that are dead, particularly when you're anxious or afraid, worried, threatened. What are they? You need to start putting them more to death and eradicating them and then saying, how can I go more to Jesus Friends, that life is never going to flow. Jesus did not save you simply for you to ride out the rest of your years in comfort and ease. He saved you to be his ambassador to the world. And until you find something that you're plugging into and sacrificing for, you'll never know his life flowing through you. You'll simply be a repository of stagnant, semi-life. So again, come to Him this morning and rejoice. Because of what Christ provides, His flesh and His blood, there is no shortage and He would give you life. So let us appeal to Him to help us to live that life together. Let's pray. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we praise You this morning. We thank You for entering a dead world and offering us life, and making us alive. 
We pray that you would help us to recognize that which we consume, which is dead. We are flesh eaters, and we pray that you would continue to renew us. And in renewing us, forgive us for our selfishness, and that we would be hoarders. Even in that, we continue to be flesh eaters, and we pray that instead you would help us to be affected by your love for us and your sacrifice in such a way, and so filled up with your very presence that we give life to others. And in giving life to others, we receive more of you. We could not conceive of such generosity in any other fashion. Jesus, thank you for giving us yourself. Thank you for providing us abundantly with your flesh and blood and making us human again. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.